Welcome to the Eventful Entrepreneur. My name's Dodge. I've been an entrepreneur for over 30 years and thrown thousands of parties across the UK. And I'm also the owner of the Bournemouth Sevens Festival. Everyone who knows me knows I love people, having a laugh <laughs> and asking lots of questions. So I've been chatting to people with one thing in common. They've all lived eventful lives. This week, I'm delving into the eventful life of Rob Starr. Rob escaped the dread of an office job he hated to go from handing out flyers to throwing his own festivals. From illegal raves and the emerging clubbing scene to Ibiza in the 90s, Rob has lived and breathed events for over 30 years. I can relate to so much of what he has to say, especially the buzz of throwing parties and the financial risks it takes to get a festival over the line. If you love festivals and events, you are going to love this chat. If you want to hear more like this, make sure you subscribe to the Eventful Entrepreneur podcast. And if you want to get hold of me personally, you can get me on Instagram at Dodge Woodall. I reply to every message. Here he is, the man himself, Mr. Rob Starr. Rob, welcome to the show, buddy. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, mate. I'm looking forward to this one. Um, let's get straight to it. Let's get cracking. How did you first start getting into events? Um, I suppose my love of events was sort of birthed going to raves. Like we're talking early 90s. Yes, my quality. <laughs> um, and yeah, the first rave that I went to was, it was a big rave called Fantasia. And uh, it was in a village called Castle Donington, which just happened to be uh, just down the road from where I lived in Leicestershire at the time. And uh, I was only 14, so I shouldn't really have been going <laughs> off to raves. Um, but I told my mum I was going night fishing and uh, we went off to this rave. Um, and at the time, it was the biggest rave uh, in England. It was, well, the biggest legal rave. It was 25,000. Was it legal, was it? It was then? legal yeah. at that time. Yeah, they just sort of got gone from having the illegal raves in the sort of late 80s, early yeah. 90s. And, yeah. and 91, 92 was when they started to That's sort right. of legalise everything. Yeah. So yeah, at the time, this was the biggest legal rave in, in, in England. And I was just there going, wow, this yeah. is like immense. You know what I mean? I was a 14 year old kid and I was just like, this is the most amazing thing yeah, yeah, I've ever yeah. seen in my life. Yeah. And that was my, that was the start of, I suppose, my raving career. But even at that time, I never thought, oh, one day I could be doing something like this. One day I'll be, be a festival owner. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that, that, you know, that's, to be honest, that thought never crossed my mind for a long time. And I never thought that, you know, a kid from where I came from and, and do you know what I mean? like the, the the way i grew up that i could you know that i could yeah. do that sort of thing yeah, you know yeah. what i mean I, I didn't even dream it at that yeah. point yeah so how did it develop then you went there you went to fantasia yeah twenty-five thousand people partying in a field you're yeah. like god this is dream stuff what was your next move from there did you get start putting on events at, at an early age or what did you go down a certain route first i did yeah i was i was you know i, I was very entrepreneurial when i was a kid I had like three paper rounds yeah. to wash people's cars like anything to earn a pound coin i was i was trying to do it um, pound note back then pound note yeah it wasn't was pound it? note yeah <laughs> i missed uh, the old i missed the old one pound notes you know i miss cash you know everywhere, <laughs> everywhere i go now people want to want to charge me on the yeah, card beep, it's like, beep beep isn't it everything yeah yeah yeah, yeah i do uh yeah i do miss it <laughs> i've even got a five on me phone. Have you? <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so so i suppose that entrepreneurial sort of spirit brought me into putting parties on at quite an early age. I was 16, 17 when I put my first parties on. Yeah. And that was just for kids at school. Um, me and my mates decided that we were going to do like an end of term party for the school. Um, and we we were we were 16, 17 then and, and we managed to um, convince some venue owners that uh, <laughs> it was an end of term party for everyone doing their A-levels and everyone was going to be 18. So yeah. they managed to get some venues where they they would serve as where were they, where were you in the country then uh, this was in leicester leicester okay yeah i grew up in leicester okay um so yeah the first venue we used was a hotel it's called the wigston stage and uh we did an end of term party there i think we had about 300 people Happy there days yeah and how much a man you uh, remember i think it was about 20 quid was it 15 quid 20 quid wow fair but, play. but that included your coach journey there and back yeah, 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 yeah. um i think it included a bit of food as yeah. well um <laughs> and a champagne reception we put on brilliant. to start with brilliant yeah we did did a few of those parties eventually the school banned the parties um and they said look you can't do these parties anymore because i think uh parents had complained yeah. or and they said right he said if you do them you've got to organize them with the school yeah. you've got to come in like yeah. we'll organize them with you and we're going to take all the money <laughs> And I was like, this ain't working. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think so. And uh, so I said to them, well, I'm still going to do it anyway. And they were like, well, you can't promote it within the school and yeah. you can't put any posters up and you can't yeah. do anything like that. 
Um, so I used to stand up actually, I used to like get to like break time or lunchtime and I'd stand on a chair and I'd like say, look, I can't put any posters up, but this is what's happening. This is what's happening, yeah. brilliant. <laughs> and we still sell all the tickets, so. Brilliant. And then yeah. what, what was the what was the move from there as so a coming into your adult life then, that sort of 18 year old, are you still on that party front? Um, yeah, still very much going to parties yeah. and, and I'd started also running bus trips to different clubs around the country as well yeah. at that point. Um, and um, I moved to London when I was 18. Um, I'd been been going out around the country to various clubs and I was thinking, oh, maybe I'll go to like Leeds or Sheffield or Manchester. But uh, London was somewhere that I hadn't really been to too much. Yeah. And um, I really fancied the challenge of going down to London and seeing yeah. what that was all about. Yeah. Um, so I moved to London, I went to uni, I went to Goldsmiths College. Um, and yeah, I suppose then that opens up a whole new <laughs> market and a whole new uh, way of living. So. Yeah. Yeah, I jumped straight into the club scene as soon as I moved to London. So when you were up in the Midlands, were you going to like Wobble in Birmingham we and Money Pennies and yes. everything all around the country? Okay, yeah, yeah same. Yeah. same. Yeah. Wobble was the, had a bouncy dance floor, didn't it? Certainly did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I went to, we used to run bus trips down to Money Pennies and, and uh, up to Leeds. We used to go back to basics a lot, up your Ronson. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, yeah, good times. Good times, isn't it? Yeah. I love the mid nineties. Yeah. So then, what? So you went to university. You saw the amount of students there. Did you start throwing student parties, or did what, what, what um, was the next step? We did, yeah. Um, we did quite a few parties. It's a bit different in London to go into a sort of big university town because all the universities are obviously spread yeah. across yeah. London. So at Goldsmiths, you only had like a couple of thousand people on the campus there. So there wasn't like a huge. Um, sort of student base, but we used to do parties in pubs around. We were we were in South East London in New Cross, so we used to do parties in the pubs and, and bars around New Cross and Deptford. Um, and then I was also working for a company called uh, Universe, and Universe used to put on a big rave called Tribal Gathering. Tribal Gathering, yeah, yeah that's right. Where was that? Where were their big um, raves? They started in '93. They were down in Warminster. I went to that first one in '93. And then they moved. They moved it around a bit. They were in Oxford for a couple of years, yeah. and then they were at Luton Who. When I went to work for them, um, they were in Luton Who, and uh, I think they did two years there, ninety maybe ninety six, ninety seven. Yeah. And they were part of the Mean Fiddler group there, who used to do Phoenix Festival. That's and, right. Yeah, who were ah. involved in Reading and Leeds. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so they co-promoted it with them. Yeah. But they also used to have a, a club called the Complex in Islington. Uh, they were at Club UK down in Wandsworth. Wandsworth, I used to have Club UK. I used yeah. to love Club UK. Yeah, it was a good club. That was a good one. And that's when the that's when, uh, when the old rave scene then went into the clubs. Yeah. And when, when they went into clubs and there's massive sound speakers um, and then the bars would just be bottles of water and you go for a refill in the in the toilet, just hot water, it wouldn't allow you to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, amazing. So how long were you working for them for? And what were you doing with them? Um, so basically, I just sort of got in touch with them speculatively when I moved down to London and I became their flyer boy, basically. Yeah. I was going around the record shops of London, dropping all the flyers off, putting posters up in clothes shops. Making and, contacts. Yeah, basically, yeah. basically. And um, they, had, they had this regular Friday night that moved. Club UK got shut down mm. and it moved to uh, the complex, which was in Islington at the time. It was a uh, four stories sort of venue. And they ran every Friday night there, a night called Final Frontier. Mm. And you had all the big techno DJs of the time, yeah. Richie Horton, Carl Cox, Jeff Mills, um, Andrew Weverall, uh, God rest his soul. You yeah. used to DJ there quite a lot as well. Yeah. Um, so you had like, it was a bit like a who's who of techno DJs. Yeah. So I'd be there on a Friday night looking after the DJs, getting drinks. Making I'd be running contacts. The <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Quality. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what it is in this game. It's Absolutely. all about making contacts. There's no real career path for you. Nobody yeah. says, oh, you need to do this, yeah. this, this, and you'll get there. You just have to get in there yourself Absolutely. And, and try and do something. Yeah. It's all about contacts. Totally, yeah. totally. So then so well, then, what was your move then? So you were learning the trade, you were learning the DJs, you're getting the contacts. Yeah. When was the point you're thinking, hold on a minute, I can actually do this myself. Was there a point? You know what? I still, even at that point, while I was at uni, I still wasn't thinking I could make a career out yeah. of this. I was thinking this is something that I really love, that I'm really passionate about. And when I say that now, it's like, well, that's the obvious thing. You've got to do what you're passionate yeah, about. Yeah. But I didn't, I suppose I didn't have the mindset that I can make a living out of something that I really love. I mm. thought I had to go and get a job. Yeah. That was like, you know, the natural progression for me. And that was what I saw around me was mm. people, you know, they leave school, they get a job mm. and you have to earn your money. Yeah quite often doing something that you're not let into. Yeah, couldn't think of anything worse. Yeah, me too. Jesus. When I look back now, I'm like, 
And, and, and I suppose the turning point for me was around there because when I left uni, I got a job and I, I did uh, IT recruitment. And, you know, there was people in that office, they were earning 100K a year, yeah. like putting people into jobs. And it was late 90s. It was the time of the dot-com like yeah. thing. And I was like, right, I'm going to do that. I'm going to make some money. And I think I lasted maybe like three months there, yeah. four yeah. months. And I hated it. Yeah. And I was going into work every day. And I was like, I just don't want to be yeah. here. And before that, there was, I suppose, another, another turning point in my life where... Um, I went to uh, Homelands Festival, which sort of t took over from Tribal Gathering as yeah. the big dance music Where was festival. That? that was at Winchester at Matterley Bowl. What, the same bowl as Boomtown? That's the one. Is that right? Yeah. 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 What year were we talking here then? It, that one was 99, but I think they started, they actually started with Creamfields at Matterley Bowl in I think 97. And wow. the, the guys who, one of the guys, Darren Hughes, who used to run Cream, he set up home yeah. um, and, and they turned it into Homelands. And they ran Homelands there uh, for quite a few years. Oh, wow. Um, and yeah, I remember that I think it was Homelands in 1999 and I went there and they premiered uh, Human Traffic, the film Human Traffic, yeah. which is all about raving in the yeah. 90s. Yeah, yeah, Cracking film. Great film, yeah. yeah. And I remember I watched that film uh, and I came out and I was like, yeah, I was quite quite on a half. It's like, an amazing film. And uh, I think... Two days later, I booked a flight to Ibiza and I went to Ibiza. <laughs> and that was May 99. And yeah, literally turned up in Ibiza. Um, didn't have a job, didn't have anything to do, but I'd built the contacts. Yeah. Like you say, yeah. like I knew people on the island. Yeah. I knew the events that were happening. And yeah, pretty soon I got a job. I got a job working at Space, um, at the Sunday nights at Space. Oh, which, Space Terrace. Yeah. On the terrace in space on yeah. a Sunday. Yeah. Oh, amazing. It was amazing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and those good times, memories. Yeah, the the night the nineties in the was, was great, and that yeah. was the back end of the nineties. But I'd been going since ninety five. Yeah, and yeah, there were special times yeah. definitely. So, how long were you in Ibiza for? Uh, I was just there for that summer, yeah. so I went there summer ninety nine, worked for the summer, um, and I actually had to come back before the end of the summer because I, st I had to start this job yeah. in IT recruitment. Yeah. So I think I came back maybe back end of August, something like that, um, and I started the job and. I was hating it, didn't really want to do it. I was dreading getting up in the morning. Oh, mate. What's and, that feeling like? Uh, you know what? I've only, that's the I've only never time had that feeling. I've ever no. had it. And people talk about, you know, getting the horrors on a Sunday yeah. when they've got to get up for work. And yeah. like, I got it there. Yeah. And I was, was it anxiety? Is it fear the night before thinking, what am I doing with my life? Or is it all you going, I've got to make ends meet. I've got to go to work on a Monday or there's no other option. What was the feeling? For me, it was that fear of, because I was living in South East London and their office was in Wimbledon. So I had to get on quite a long train yeah, journey in yeah. the morning and I hated that train yeah. journey. Do you know what I mean? And then you're in the office and it's a sales job. So I was sat in the office, my boss was sat next to me and if I wasn't on the phone talking to someone and trying to sell something, he'd be like that, get on the phone, oh, mate. get on the phone. So you're picking the phone up and obviously you're picking the phone up talking to people who don't want to talk yeah, to you. Yeah. Like it's, it's, a, it's a cold calling sales yeah. job, effectively. You're trying to sell jobs to people. You're trying to find out where there is jobs. Yeah. And, and it's just that dread of having to go and spend eight hours yeah. in an environment that you don't want to be yeah. in. Yeah. And I, there was a very big turning point in my life in that job. Um, and I, I remember the day I got a phone call and uh, it was one of my, one, one of my friends and, um, one of our good mates uh, had died in a mm. car crash with his girlfriend. Mm. Um, and, you know, I remember getting that call and it really put things into perspective. He was a few years older than me, uh, Adam Turner, his name was. And I was there going, he's not here anymore. And that could be me. That yeah. could have been any one of us yeah. like, in that car. And... I'm wasting my life yeah. in a job that I hate. Mm. And yeah, I literally resigned after yeah. that. And So you can thank him, mate, I guess. We for, can thank him. Yeah, yeah. of course. Amazing. Yeah, definitely. Amazing. And and I'd already actually been offered a job by Home, who I was working for in Ibiza. And Home was in? H home Home London yeah. uh, was in Leicester Square. Leicester, that's right. Yeah. Leicester Square, that's right. And I opened that. was that. massive. It was huge, yes. Jeez, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, seven stories, I that's think it right. was. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it had uh, like, going there, yeah. cafe on the ground floor yeah. and then it had four floors that were a club 
then it had a private members yeah, bar, right. then it had a restaurant. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was. A, and how long were you there for then? That must have been a good experience. How old were you when you were there at home in London? I would have been like 21. 21. Yeah. That must have been a ball for you. You must have loved that, right? Oh, it was amazing. Yeah, it was like, you know, at the time it was the biggest club opening in London. That's right. Well, the, in the country. Yeah. It was the biggest thing everyone was talk, rave, it talking was. about, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, Paul Oakenfolder's residence. What year are we talking? This was, when I first started working for him was 99. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was just working part-time initially. Yeah. And then I think they closed in about 2002. Mm. And I started working there full-time in 2000. Okay. And what were you doing there? Um, again, I just started off at the bottom, so yeah. I was doing flyering. Yeah. I was literally standing outside, like um, I've got, to, I've got to say, flyering. You learn good life skills. You certainly do. You learn good life skills, yeah. and, and that's something that's gone away in today's promoting world. You know, yeah. The amount of people you're on the street with, identifying yeah. who you can give a flyer to, identifying are they going to come to the club, and talking to them yeah. and explaining to them this is the best. They're amazing life skills to have. And then seeing them. And then seeing in them in the, the club. club having the best time of their life. And then yeah. they clock you next week and they've seen you and you're like thumbs up. It's just, a yeah. 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 yeah there's a guy I met in Ibiza actually flyering, Andy, uh, lives down in Brighton now. And I literally gave him a flyer to the club, saw him in the club and we became mates after. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you, you, you learn on the job yeah. there. Do you know what yeah. I mean? You I had like, 10 years of flyering. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Millions of flyers to yeah. hand. In different cities all around the country and that's where you learn your trade certainly yeah yeah that and fly posting we yeah. did a lot of fly posting Same. around london but that's, as well. but that's normally whacking them up and then put, put them up for no one sees you yeah. and they're not off you go on your toes <laughs> isn't it that's another life yeah. skill yeah we did a lot of that <laughs> and then what so 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 you were you were you were learning your trade you went into home home lasted two or three years yeah you were there you had throw some amazing parties and i'm sure you're again making quality contacts yeah what was it? What was the next step for you? I, I suppose home for me was where I realised, okay, I can make a living out of this. Yeah, I can actually make this my life, and I can make it uh, earn me some money yeah. as well. So I suppose that was when I was like, right, well, how can I do that? Like that—that that was the first, I suppose, time I thought well, I'd like to have a venue because I saw home and I saw how it was run, and even though it was on a massive scale, I thought. I could do that. Mm. I could run a venue. I could own a venue. Mm. I could make it work. I could promote it. I could mm. get people through the door. Mm. So that so that was when I first thought I, I would like a venue and I wanted a nightclub. That was like my that was yeah. like my dream. I was like, I'm gonna open a nightclub. And I, I suppose then I started thinking, okay, well if I'm gonna open a nightclub, I need to have some money. I need to have some capital. How can I make some money? How yeah. can I raise the money to open that club? And I was already promoting, so it was a natural thing for me to become a full-time promoter. Yeah. That was, you know. At the age of what, 23, 24 was this? Yeah, well, I started off, um, I, I, I got another full-time job, my only other full-time job, um, and I was selling medical equipment. Um, and that meant they gave me a company car, I worked from home, I used to visit hospitals. I didn't know what you were doing. You got exactly. a car and you got paid. Happy days. Why exactly. You can, why you can work out your master plan. Yeah. Yeah. Good yeah. for you, mate. So, and, you know, I wasn't bad at that job either. I used to do all right. And, yeah. and I'd get my job done. But I was doing that while I was putting the parties on. Yeah. And I went from um, doing sort of small clubs in Islington of sort of 150, 200 people. And then I sort of started moving into the bigger clubs in London and putting on events in there. Um, and then eventually... I decided that I didn't want to do parties in clubs. I wanted to have my own sort of pop-up space. Yeah. And I built a little club in East London, um, which which I called Our House, Rob's House, because uh, it was my house. I literally lived next door. Yeah. Um, and started basically putting on illegal parties in there. <laughs> <laughs> Quality. Tell me more. So, <laughs> so yeah, at the time in London, the, the London scene was split. There was a lot of... Um, sort of legal clubs that were really big. In my opinion, they weren't the best parties. They're yeah. a bit um, sanitized and money making machines. That's what basically, they were, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'd grew up sort of raving outdoors and going to illegal parties and stuff like that, and going to warehouse parties. And I was like, well, we need to bring some of that back, yeah. some of that you know excitement and um, some of that vibe back to London and. Over the years, I've been to various parties in London that were set up like that. There was, there was one called Hoxton Pimps. Um, there was a guy called Ranks used to just take over uh, car parks or warehouse spaces. <laughs> and he'd run them for the whole weekend and he'd start normally on a bank holiday weekend. He'd start on Friday night and he'd keep them going yeah. till Monday morning. Yeah. 
Uh, illegal or legal? Some of his were legal. I know he did used to get. Did he have a license? Yeah, some you, of them okay. he did used to get a license yeah. for. I think some of them were definitely illegal, but yeah. I know certainly he did get okay. licenses for some Is of them. Is he still on the scene? Uh, I've not seen Rank uh-huh. for a while, uh-huh. no. no. I occasionally used to bump into him yeah. in Hoxton, but yeah, I think he still has got um, got some spaces in Hoxton that he does. Um, I don't think he does parties in there anymore, yeah. but he, he, he has, he's still around. Yeah. yeah. And then there was other parties called Lost. There was a big party called Lost. That used to move its venues as well so i wanted to recreate something like that in east london um and i was looking for a space for a while actually maybe a year and one of my mates steve uh he put me in touch with someone um who had a space in oldgate and it was an old toy factory um or it was a toy shop actually on the ground floor and it had uh, like a factory upstairs and i spoke to the landlord really nice guy um, and I said, look, I said, I really want to do parties in your space. I said, I know it's derelict at the moment. I said, I know you're not using it for anything. And I, th- I think um, his daughter had done a few parties in there for her friends and stuff. And he was really up for it, actually. Really nice guy, Tom. And he's probably in his 60s. And uh, he said, right, come down, have a look. He said, he said, he said, you can do parties in now on one condition. He said, if you rent the space next door, which was a flat next door, mm. He said, you can do parties in the warehouse. And I was like, I was I literally just bought my first flat at the time as yeah. well in South East London. Yeah. But I was going out over East London all the time anyway. So I was like, brilliant. Yeah, that'll do. <laughs> Moved over to East London and started doing parties. Quality. So what was it then? Did you have to pay him rent for that? Or did you just um, did he give it to you free if you took the flat next door? How much were you charging to get in? Were you bringing alcohol in as well and selling that? So, so he used to charge me £500 each time I did a party. He used to charge me a grand a month for the space next door yeah. that I lived in, which was a warehouse as well. Yeah. Um, and he used to charge me £500 each time I did a party. And we used to charge a fiver in on the door. Yeah. Um, we were selling the alcohol in there. If anybody from licensing is listening. <laughs> we weren't. <laughs> we definitely weren't. <laughs> um, and yeah, those parties used to run from sort of like 11 o'clock midnight till sort of seven eight in the morning <laughs> um and i think probably you get like three four hundred people yeah, in, into those parties and i'm sure it's, I, I prefer those intimate parties you know yeah you know because you yeah. have proper people in there don't yeah you? totally i mean we knew pretty much everybody yeah. who came like we didn't do flyers we didn't really yeah. like advertise it yeah. anywhere it was all word of mouth it was yeah. all like friends and friends of friends who came yeah. and it didn't last long. I think we only did, maybe did like five, six parties in mm. there. Um, did that and, give you the taste though? Oh, totally, yeah. totally. And mm. we we bring, we had a big turbo sound, sound system that you used to bring in there and it was immense. Like, yeah. the, the, the sound in there was phenomenal. Yeah. And that was what actually got us shut down because it, it was down an alleyway where you used to go into the back of this venue and you could hear the music, but yeah. no one knew where it was coming yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think the police and the council must have had a few complaints. And I think it was it was the sixth party that we were going to do, and uh, everything was set up. The venue was all ready to go. Yeah, yeah. Like, and all of a sudden, we had a knock on the knock on the oh, back no. door, and we were like, we thought it was just like one of our mates that yeah. like, maybe turned off a bit early. It's seven old Bill. Oh down no! And- <laughs> <laughs> Your heart drops. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, actually, they they didn't nick me, but they pulled the landlord in and they uh, took him in for questioning yeah. and like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was the end of that uh, And then the next step from there, what was the next movement from there after uh, getting that taste? Tell me the feeling you get when you know, because I don't know what the feeling's like, yeah. and you know what the feeling's like, but for people listening, what's that feeling like when you put on a party and you see everyone turning up? In those spaces, because it takes so much effort to put on those parties and obviously when you're doing them semi-legally illegally like you've also got the added like stress of are the police going to turn up is someone going to shut it down have we spent all this money and we're going to lose it because we're not even going to be able to put the party on so when everybody does come and you're there and it's like three o'clock in the morning and the crowd's going crazy and like you know it's better than drugs like you don't need drugs when you've got that kind of buzz like you're like wow, this is amazing. Yeah, and yeah. like, you know, all your mates are there and like, it's just an incredible feeling. Yeah. And and I think it's one that doesn't matter how old I get or how many parties I put on, I can still, Same. you know, I still get that buzz. Yeah. And yeah, it, it is hard to describe because I think a lot of it is, you know, just an expression of all that effort and mm. that time 
that you've put into creating mm. that event, just seeing it come to fruition. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's, you know, some of these parties that we work on now, like the festivals, we work all year yeah. on them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So for that to like actually culminate in something, it's, you know, it's a lot. Sometimes it's, it, it's just the release of that pressure yeah. as well, that pressure that has built up with you anticipating it and, you know, all the things that could go wrong yeah. or might happen or the ups and the downs that you have along the way. It's just that sometimes it's, it's that feeling of like, wow, we've actually done, done it. Done it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the feeling the next day when you know that everyone's left, they've had a brilliant time. Yeah. And that yeah. feeling goes on for a couple of weeks, everyone talking about that party. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For, for me, sometimes the day after is better than yeah. the actual Because it's done, day. isn't it? Yeah, because yeah. it's done. Yeah. And that's like, well, now that's when I get to party. Because yeah. when I'm at the parties, I'm like- You've got to be on it. You know, yeah, yeah. I have. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I can't always enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, but the next day, or if we've got an after party on, then- that's when that's nice isn't and it? I'll enjoy myself. <laughs> yeah yeah so then so then from there when did you get into was there a period after these throwing these parties that you then thought where did the idea come about and you said all oh, right i want to do a, a festival now an inner city london festival well one of the one of the parties we did at that space was called mullet over and me and my <laughs> mate stuart geddes as in mullet mullet well that's over that that's that's where it came from was be brilliant well, Everyone in East London at that time, sort of mid two thousands, had mullet hair. Had grew yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Stuart came up with a name. He, he still says he, he didn't come up with it because of that, but it, it stuck in yeah. London because because of that that, that sort of mullet too. haircut. Yeah. yeah, and we started doing those parties. And we and just, it's funny when you talk about the mid two thousand people used to have mullet. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Someone said there was going to be another revival. Yeah, recently. Fact, so I just I just said the Sam this morning about it. he's growing a little mullet at the back there. <laughs> he's on trend. He's on trend. <laughs> um, so we started that party mullet over, and that became a bit of a phenomenon in London. And we we took the warehouse ethos that we had with those early parties that I was doing, and we translated that across warehouses in in London. Yeah. And we grew that party to about five thousand people when it was at its peak. Wow. Um, and we took that to Ibiza. We did that in space in Ibiza every Sunday morning. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we did that part part of Darren's We Love We Love Space. Yeah. Every Sunday morning in the discotheca, which is the yeah. only big inside room. That's right. Of space. Yeah. And then we did parties. Uh, we did again. We did another summer of illegal parties in Ibiza. Yeah. We did one one or two up in the hills behind Amnesia. Behind um, Amnesia. Behind Amnesia. What, in the villa? Because they really clamped down on the villa parties. Yeah. They? Well, this was two thousand seven, and yeah. they were already starting to clamp down, yeah. but. We had some good contacts over there yeah. and um, we found a guy, um, he lived up in the Campo, like in, yeah. in the hills behind Amnesia yeah. and he had just a little farmhouse but he had loads of land by the farmhouse and it was all on the side of a, a, a sort of hillside and I think we did three parties there or four parties there and we used to pay the police, like my mate <laughs> knew the police um, and he used to give the police that a few hundred euros to come and do security yeah, for us yeah so we'd have the police on the door um get everyone on the firm perfect yeah yeah, yeah. and we'd have like thousand two thousand people yeah. at those parties yeah um that did culminate at, at the end of that so that was I think that was maybe summer two th 2007 2008 yeah. and the, the last party that we did we built it up over the summer i think we did two up in the campo uh we did one on a beach sold and sarah um which um Dave Piccioni owns owns a big beach bar on now. At that time, um, there was a restaurant there that wasn't being used much, so we had a party in the restaurant and on the beach. Uh, and then we did one in a in a strip club, um, just outside of Ether Town. And then the final party of the season was going to be underneath this lighthouse in Portonax. And we probably had about three four thousand people come into that party. <laughs> so we we'd got on the radar yeah. of, of the big clubs yeah. in Ibiza, and we got on the radar of people probably not wanting us, not wanting us to get that big yeah and yeah. we set this party up underneath this lighthouse in port on top of a cliff and uh about two o'clock in the morning we had about 1500 2000 people there and all of a sudden and and this is what i haven't told you the police who were very kindly doing our, yeah. our security yeah. for us they gave us a call at about 10 o'clock that night and they said oh We've been called into um, uh, work tonight. I said, we've got to go and work. Like, we can't do the security for you. And that should have rang yeah, alarm bells alarm for bells, me. I yeah. should have been thinking, yeah. oh, what's going yeah. on here? But I was just, you know, you get so blase thinking, I've done these great parties all summer and yeah. everyone's just loving continue. them. The police are happy. Everyone's exactly. happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah about two o'clock in the morning, 
three or four sort of jeeps full of Garda Seville turned up <laughs> and basically looking for whoever was putting the party on. Um, someone must have pointed yeah, to yeah. me and, yeah, they chucked me in the back oh, of the van. Oh, they chucked in the back, did yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah. banged you up yeah, for the night? Yeah. Overnight? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. So. They, weren't, they weren't rough with you? No, they were all they're right, right, to be they? fair. Because like, Garda Seville can be yeah. tough lads, well, aren't they? When they nicked me, they were a little bit rough, throwing yeah. me in the back of the van. Yeah. Um, but once I got to the police station, yeah, they were actually all right. And they closed the party down, obviously. Um, there was another friend of mine there, Sid, who I was organising with, Sid Shanti. Um, and he sort of like made sure the sound system was there and, you know, shut the party down. And then they kept me there till six in the morning. And... He needed my passport in order to charge me. I yeah. didn't have my passport. My battery ran out on my phone. And uh, he was like, right, what are we going to do then? And I was like, well, I don't know. I've not got my passport. Yeah. I can't get it. Like, And he was like, it's your lucky day. Is that what he said? Yeah, he said, oh, it's, it's, it's your lucky day. You got, and it was at that time, it was a 10,000, I think a 10 or 20,000 euro fine, fine yeah. for doing an illegal party. Yeah. And he said, right, it's your lucky day. He said, you can never ever come to this park, come to this island and throw those sorts of parties. That's how he again. said. Yeah. And he says, if you do, he said, that's yeah, it. And he yeah, was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he, you know, he was fine. He, like all the time I was there, I was smoking cigarettes with yeah, him okay. and like, get me cups of coffee. Yeah, and, like, yeah. So it wasn't rough. No, yeah, it, was, it was yeah. all right. Okay, but, that's good. Yeah. It, it sort of put the end to our uh, yeah. little, little Ibiza yeah. uh, secret party. Right, good parties out there, right? They were amazing parties. I love that island. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think apart from last year was the first time that I hadn't been to the island since I think 97. Same. I went yeah. 93 and I've been every year. I think every I had a little period a couple of years off in the yeah. late 2000s or something. But yeah, I love yeah. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Amazing love over it. There. Beautiful island. It is, yeah. yeah. And, and you can go there and, and have an amazing time about full-on partying in the clubs at six o'clock in the morning. You know, so many really. lovely day beach clubs and bars and... Yeah, restaurants, restaurants are amazing and out there. Beaches and atmosphere yeah. and weather. It's got everything, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I was actually going to take my mum there for her 70th. Same. Last I'm year. taking my mum for her 70th this year. Are you? Yeah. 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 Because yeah. my mum always said to me, oh, she, she's got one impression of it and I yeah. want to take her to all the nice restaurants. Yeah, yeah. I want to take and her to all see. the beaches. And, yeah. Yeah. Oh, fair play. So yeah. then, so you triggered yes. Ibiza, boom, yes. loved it. Then what? You come back with a little spring in your step, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so the parties there in London were getting bigger. And I think it was probably the year after that we started Eastern Electrics. That was 2000, 2008, we started Eastern Electrics. Um, and it started off in a similar vein to the parties that we've been doing. It started off as a big warehouse party. So your brand today is Eastern Electrics. Yes. And back in 2008, you came, 2008 was it? You came yes. up with the name of Eastern Electrics. Yes. Wow. So it's got a good 13 years under its belt. Yeah. 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 And uh, it started off. As a warehouse party, it was in um, some railway arches on Great Suffolk Street in central London, yeah. just behind the Tate Modern. And we used to take over those railway arches on uh, May Bank Holiday, August Bank Holiday and New Year's Eve. And we'd have two, 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 two and a half thousand people there. And we always had the vision of creating a festival. Yeah. But at that time, we didn't want to just go, right, let's put on a festival. We wanted to build a brand, build the audience. Yeah. Um, and really create an event that, that could move into a festival. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and it was always underground house and techno that we were pushing, and that was we, what we wanted to evolve our festival into. And, and at that time, that music wasn't really being served yeah. for festivals. Yeah. Um, and you know, it seems seems funny saying that now because and this summer, everywhere. like next summer, yeah, yeah they're they all over the place. But yeah. in in the whole of the UK, really, there wasn't anything that That's was right. that was service in that market so well, you think about it too we launched in 2008 you launched in 2008 but back then there's probably only like 15 festivals in the uk yeah. Let, yeah. Alone, let alone the 500 to a thousand there are now yeah exactly mm. it was like yeah it was a small market mm. not many people were doing it and there was probably a reason for that as well yeah. because at that time it wasn't that easy to put on a festival right. it wasn't that easy it's to still get not the now. license. it's still not now <laughs> yeah. no still not yeah. now yeah. but i think licensing certainly has got easier yeah. and people um and more open to having yeah. you in their venues and things like that, which certainly wasn't the case yeah. sort of back then. Yeah. So yeah, we spent a few years building that brand, and it wasn't really um, wasn't till 2012 when we took the plunge into the festival mm. business. So tell me that feeling when you went. Did you go in there with a bit of naivety when you said, "Right, I'm doing to do a full-on festival now," or, or were you warmed to knowing what the costs would be? 
I went in there with complete naivety. Yeah, same. And even though I'd I'd worked on festivals, I'd worked with Homelands on their festival, I'd worked with Tribal Gathering, um, worked helped Gatecrasher out with some bits with, yeah. when they did a festival. So I'd been in that festival world, but obviously no one's showing you their P and Ls, no one's yeah. telling you like you know how much money they've made or lost, and yeah. you. Like like people do now when they go to festivals. I'm just going when I go to, oh, yeah, they're charging that yeah. on the door and it's that for a yeah. drink. And, yeah. you know, you do the maths on the back of a fag packet yeah. or in your head and you think, oh, they must be making millions. millions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and, yeah, the harsh realities are that there are a huge amount of costs yeah. and your margins between making and losing money are very, very fine. Yeah. And, yeah, nobody told me that before we did our first yeah. event. And... Even though we, we sold out our first event. Where was the first event? There's a story behind that as well. Um, the first event ended up being in uh, what were the, what was the car park for the Millennium Dome in Greenwich. Okay. Um, so it's now, Interesting. it's now houses. They built a load of houses on that land. Yep. But um, yeah, they had huge car parks. And this is 2012. Mm. And this is the year of the London Olympics. Yep. So they're using the dome as a, an Olympic event. And that was how we got the license for the car parts because they were already licensed to put a festival on. Oh, okay. So they already had it? Yeah, they already had oh, the perfect. license. You jumped onto that license. Yeah. We, we did, but previous to that, we were actually supposed to be on Clapham Common. Yeah. Um, and originally, we were going to do a co-promotion with, with Mama Group, who did Lovebox Festival at yeah. the time. Yeah. And they um, had Clapham Common booked, and they were going to do two weeks during the Olympics of um, festivals and events. Uh, they had Elton John that was going to do a big event there. Uh, well, on Clapham Common? On Clapham was Common, it? yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and we were going to do a Saturday. They were going to do some other stuff there. And it was all like um, all happening. And they didn't have Elton confirmed. And they didn't, I don't think they had quite the license sorted. And we were really keen to go on and get our tickets on sale. Yeah. And we had a meeting with them. And we said, look, we're ready to go with this. We've booked the acts. Yeah. We've got everyone ready to go. Can we put the tickets on yeah. sale? And they were like, you can, but it's not quite 100% finalised yet. Oh, no. And in our naivety, we were like, oh, it's Mama Group. They're a big yeah, organisation. Yeah, of course, yeah, they'll yeah. get it together yeah, and it will yeah. happen. And and we put the tickets on sale. I think we sold 5,000 tickets like within the first few yeah, days. Yeah. And we were like, brilliant. Yeah. Do you remember how much they were, roughly? Yes. Um, they were, I say I can remember now. <laughs> I think they were £25. And the reason I put them at £25 because 20 years before that, at my first rave, that's how much it was to go to okay. Fantasia okay. at that time. Okay. So we did our first early bird ticket at £25, and then they went up to yeah. like £35, yeah, £40. Yeah, yeah. Pound. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they weren't super expensive. Mm. Um, and we thought, oh, it's easy, this festival business, isn't it? <laughs> we sold nearly, because I think we were, do, we were doing like 12,000 cap or something. Yeah. So we sold nearly half the tickets yeah. in the first week. Yeah. Um, and then the bombshell got dropped about a month later that, they didn't get out and that the event on Clapham Common wasn't happening and therefore our date wasn't now available. Right. So that time we'd, we probably had sold six, seven, seven thousand tickets, but we didn't have a venue. Didn't have a home, yeah. No. And I'd been fairly used to not having a home, mm. putting warehouse parties on because mm. we were always losing our venues. Yeah. Like we'd find a warehouse space, we'd get it all sorted out and either the, the venue owner might get cold feet, yeah. the police might find out about it. Um, or a license might fall through when we started to get them licensed. So we yeah. were used to like not yeah, having a venue. Course, so yeah, for yeah. me, I took it in my so, shot. Yeah, I was like, yeah. oh, oh, well, just, we'll just find like another one. Party, yeah. Yeah. We'll find another one. <laughs> Finding a 12,000 capacity yeah. venue with a license yeah. in, London, in London yeah, yeah, isn't that easy, which yeah. I found out. Um, and we spent like a couple of months looking for a space, couldn't find anywhere. And then eventually we met these Dutch guys who were doing almost like a, a sort of week-long festival or, or well, month-long festival while the Olympics was on, yeah. on the Olympic site. So what they were looking at. What were at, they doing? They were doing um, all sorts of stuff. They had um, uh, a Jamaican event on there. So that, basically they took the space for a month and they said, right, each we're going to put different parties on different days. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. And, and then during the week they were doing like, film screenings okay. they had like bars and what they were looking at is the people who were going to the dome for the olympics yeah. they would then yeah. come there after and the, yeah. there'd be some entertainment on um, and they were selling corporate packages and yeah. they were you know trying to make some money out of the olympics yeah. basically 
Um, unfortunately, they weren't very good at that. And about a month before that was due to go on, their company went bust. They hadn't mm. sold enough corporate packages. Mm. They hadn't like got enough sponsorship money in mm. and the whole thing sort of fell apart. So again, after we lost our site on Club and Common, we were literally on the verge of losing a Another second one. site. Yeah. Fortunately, they'd put the license in a separate company. So when their company went into administration, they still held the license okay. on that site. So you grabbed that. So we grabbed that. Lovely. Yeah. Lovely. But we went from then having a venue that was supposed to have been fully built for us. Yeah. They were built, they were putting all the tents on, they were building all the bars. Yeah. They were and we paid them fifty grand. Yeah. Which we lost. Did you get they took they got Well that went that went to the company that, that went into went, administration. Oh, so my. that that was one of my first my. harsh yeah. lessons. Yeah, so yeah, before yeah. we'd even put the festival on, we've lost fifty grand. Yeah. yeah. Um, and did, then, they, did they honour it? Did you go no. around to them and have a chat? No. No, they didn't honour it at all now? They, they honoured it by giving us the licence because initially they weren't even going to give us the licence. Okay, so they you weren't, traded that So off. we were like, look, you owe us 50 grand yeah. effectively and we took the licence. Okay. okay. So that was 2012. Yeah. Have you stayed in the same, I know you haven't, <laughs> but have you stayed in the same venue all the way till now? Tell us the journey. I really wish I had, Dodge. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But this is but this is this is this is your trademark. Yeah. It's become my it trademark. Has, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And that was a great site 2012. It was obviously, you know, it was east. Yeah. East for East and Electric. So and we were we were fairly centrally based, but um they only had the license for one year for that site just yeah. because it was the Olympics. They were building houses on it, so it was never a long-term bet for us. So we had to move sites then. And because of the success that we'd had, even though we didn't make any money, we sold the tickets really easily. Yeah. So we got really excited and thought, oh, we can make this bigger, we yeah. can make this better. And we moved to Nebworth after that. Um, so for the listeners, where's that? Nebworth is in Hertfordshire. It's a big stately home. Um, there's been quite a lot of iconic concerts there yeah. across the years. Um, I went to one, which was Oasis at Nebworth, which I think- Is it the Nebworth Bowl? Uh, no, it, that's a different one. Milton Keynes Milton is the Keynes, bowl. That's right, the bowl, yeah. Um, but but Nebworth does have that like, yeah, Slo yeah sloping, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, main stage, which is cracking venue, eh? Yeah, I think they had one hundred twenty five thousand there for the Oasis Jesus. gig, oh. and they did that. Um, I think Pink Floyd had played there. Robbie Williams did a big gig really? there. Um, so that was your next gig. You're thinking twenty third. Let's go there. Yeah, happy days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we weren't going on that scale. Yeah. We only wanted we wanted to do twenty thousand. So yeah. we, we it was quite an uplift in numbers. And the reason we went there is because it had an all night license. Now people now aren't so bothered about going out all night. Everybody goes out daytime Day. now. Yeah. And so you know, people will go go out to clubs that go on all night, but there's been a big shift from when me and you were going yeah. out raving to yeah. now. And I was still at that time almost a little bit obsessed with the fact that rave should go on all yeah. night because that's what I grew up with. Yeah, I grew so. up with going to fields and dancing all yeah. night and, you know, the sun coming up yeah. in the morning. So Nebworth at that time was one of the only places that had an all-night license. Mm. So we went there and this is again my naivety, but we went from a one-day show to a two-day show yeah. to a three-day camping weekend. Okay just because the figures started adding up. And in my naivety, I was thinking, well, we can offset those costs by extending the length of time that the festival yeah. was running for. Because basically you've already got the infrastructure there. Yes. If you had camping, that's another revenue stream. Yes. If you had VIP or glamping or whatever it may be, they're different revenue streams that you haven't seen before. Yeah. 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 But what that did was rather than going from 12,000 on one day to 20,000 on one day, meant we're going from 12,000 on one day to 20,000 across three days, yeah. which if you get a camping ticket, you're there for the weekend, yeah. then still one ticket, but your times in your ticket price by four, yeah. Yeah. going from 25 pound ticket to a hundred and yeah. something pound ticket. Yeah. Um, so we struggled to sell the tickets. And so you're yeah. so close to London anyway, yes. that it's harder for people to say, I'm gonna camp when I, my house is in North London, yeah. East London, South yeah. or West. Yeah. yeah, okay. So yeah, we struggled to sell the tickets. We, we just about got there. Can you remember the how end. much the rent was there? Yes. Go on. It was an extortionate amount of money. Come on, it, it, it. honestly, it hurts. Pains, <laughs> it hurts me to even say the number. 
It was 180 grand. Oh my god! Wow. It was 180 grand, but that wasn't the worst cost that we had to face because we sort of knew about that cost when we were putting our PL PL together. So, you know, that was a cost that we knew that was coming. That a we ton 80. In. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. But. The, the biggest killer for me on that show was the police bill. And that was over 100 grand plus that. I think it was yeah. 110 grand. Yeah, I can imagine. And we hadn't factored that in, again, due to our naivety. Yeah. Like we hadn't thought we were going to be paying a six-figure police yeah. bill. Yeah. And the police basically said to us, we, we, we were struggling with cash flow. It was, you know, it was over two million quid to put that show on altogether. Yeah. And, you know... <laughs> I didn't have two million quid. Yeah. My partner at the time certainly didn't have that money. Yeah. And we were trying to rob money from here yeah, and there yeah, to like yeah, yeah. just make the event happen. Yeah. And I remember at one point we were there and we had to pay the police bill, which was which was over a hundred grand, and we had to pay the the final bit of the venue hire that we needed to pay. Pre event. Pre event, yeah. And we had to pay a few other bits and I had to find a quarter of a million quid, basically by the end of the week to yeah. pay the police, the venue, and, and I think a few other artists and yeah. stuff that we needed yeah. to pay. Otherwise, the event would would have got pulled. The yeah. police police had written to me and said, if you don't pay this bill within seven yeah. days, we're going to pull the event. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we were negotiating. When they, when they write a letter, yeah. you listen. Don't you? you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. And I even rang him up. Like, we were negotiating with him <laughs> at the time. And, like, I was trying to, like, get the bill down. And I, I remember ringing him up and he was like, no, he says, you pay it or that's it. It's not yeah. happening. Yeah. And Just for the listeners here, uh, a security guard is ten to fifteen quid an hour. Yeah, a policeman is anywhere between sixty and one hundred and twenty pound an hour. Plus, 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 depending what colour badges they are, etc. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and also you get charged as well for all their time after and like yeah. you know the way they work out the bills is yeah. like yeah 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 it's it's, it's ridiculous mm. and yeah we we were, I was in a position then when I had to find a quarter of a million pound within seven days otherwise my show wouldn't happen what was the decision in your head you're going i've got to do it i'm all chips in now or was there ever a moment in your mind you go you know what i'm pulling out of this at that time i'd spent a lot of money on the show already yeah. so we were already we'd probably spent 600 700 grand on the show already <laughs> and a so lot, you're in for 600 yeah a lot of that was cash flowed from ticket sales yeah, yeah, as well yeah um so if I pull out at that point, like my career as a yeah. promoter is over. Yeah. Like I'm finished. Yeah. I'm done. And not only that, I owe financially a lot. reputation and yeah. people will be after you. As yeah. Well. yeah, I owe a okay. lot of money. Yeah. So for it, it was never even an option for it yeah. not to happen. Yeah. Like it had to go ahead. So I had to find 250 grand. Mm. And you know, I don't know that many rich people. Mm. And I think back then, back then, yeah, mm, yeah, mm. Pro probably I know a few more now. Yeah. Might might be able to. I could probably raise that yeah. money a lot easier. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but then you know, I'm like, I can't even. Remember, I'm probably thirty something. Yeah. Um, and I think I knew three people who could lend me two hundred and fifty grand. Um, can you name them? I can name them actually. Mm. Yeah. Let's I, pick them. Let's pick them up. Did they help you? Um, no. I, you, <laughs> I'm not going to name all of them. Yeah. I'm going to name some Name the of them. ones that helped you. No, I'm going to name the ones that didn't help me. Oh, yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, do that, in fact. Who no, didn't help you? No, because also <laughs> these people are people who've helped me along the way. Yeah. And, you know, I am thankful. And that's the reason why I felt I could ring them up and even yeah. ask them for the money because they were people who had helped me mm. and still have helped me. And the first person I rang was Billy Riley. And that name rings a bell. Billy Riley used to own the cross... Um, and, and uh, Canvas and Pasha right, nightclub okay. in London. So I know the name. Um, and yeah, Billy at the time, um, I didn't know super well, but um, I knew him well enough to give him a call. And um, he's he's one of those people who, you know, before I picked the phone up to him, I was quite nervous. Yeah. For anybody who knows about London, the Riley's, Keefe's brother used to own fabric. Yeah. They're, they're quite an infamous yeah, 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 family. Yeah, yeah, That's our name, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I picked the phone up to Billy and uh, he had a very nice chat with me and he was he was very complimentary about what I was doing, but he was like, look, he goes, I've got some issues with my business at the moment. He said, I can't give you 250 grand. Like, I just haven't got mm. it. And I was like, thank you very much. And, and 
since then I've got a pub around the corner from his in King's Cross um, and yeah, he helped me a lot with that and he's, he's helped yeah, me with very, various other things along the way. So well I'm done, Billy. Always thankful to yeah, Billy. Always yeah. nice. You know what? It's always nice to thank people who helped you on the way. It is. That, yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, and the next person I, I phoned up was a guy called Nick Pring uh, and he just sold his pub company for quite a few million pounds and my ex-girlfriend used to work for him um, and I gave him a call and he he again said, I'd love to help you out but you know, I've invested in a few things recently and I'm like, you know, I haven't really got much more money to invest. Mm. And uh, he turned it down. And the third person who I called who did help me out was actually someone who I'd only met twice in my life. Mm. I met him once in Costa Rica. I was drinking ayahuasca in Costa Rica. <laughs> uh, and I met this guy, Dutch guy, um, and he's in, he's in our industry, puts events on. Yeah. Um, and I went out to see him. He lives in Holland. Went out to see him in Amsterdam, partied with him a bit, stayed at his house, became like quite good friends with him. Um, and yeah, I called him up and he said, send me the numbers, show me the figures. So I sent him the numbers and he could see that we weren't a million miles from making it work. Yeah. And he could see that like, you know, we had a decent business model. Um, and he said, right, I'll wire the money. We'll be there in like two Did he days. wire it? Yeah, sent Did it over to him. Yeah. I yeah. 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 He had it back as well? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He had it back. And a drink? Drink on top? He got a bit of interest on yeah, it. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, he got... Good for you, mate. And, you know, that's that's probably the single biggest thing that anybody has done for me yeah. in my life, to ring someone up and for them to like... Get you out of the shit. Yeah, yeah. get you out of the shit in that yeah, way. Yeah. And that like, you know, I will always like, yeah. you know, be, be like thankful for that because... I would have been fucked mm. if he hadn't done how that. How much was that gig? How much did that gig in total cost to put on? That your your first your first major gig this is where you've got a proper stately home. Da, da, da. I think it cost about two million to put on. Wow. What were you thinking? I don't know what I was thinking. No. I was thinking like I can do something bigger than I could, you know what I mean? My yeah. almost like my eyes were bigger than my belly. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, you know, I was the year before I'd had three sold out shows that I'd had to move the venues forward and I had a load of issues with. Yeah. But my thing that I didn't have a problem with was selling the tickets. I did a, a Circa Loco party that year, which is big club in Ibiza. Yeah. And we did a little mini festival on Hot Farm in Kent. And we literally- Who was the promoter on Hot, the Hot Farm Festival? What was his name? Oh, that was- um, I think. Um, he was part of the- uh, He was part of me and Fiddler. Mid Fiddler, yeah. What's his yeah. name? Vince Power. Vince Power, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so Vince Power and me and Fiddler used to- uh, part own tribal gathering when I was. That's there. right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's great hearing all these names again. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So basically, um, I forgot where we were. Yeah. Just, the, just the festival, mate. That, that first year, what that one, you, you were two million quid in. How yeah. much did you lose on that one? And what was your mindset about doing the following year? We lost half a million quid. Yeah. On okay. that festival. And which is a lot of, which is a lot of money. Which is a lot of money, yep. but that included the 250 that I'd put in. Yeah. So that company didn't survive. That's yeah. the only company that I've ever had to put into administration. Yeah. So so then moving on to moving on to your second year, you're at that amazing venue, it was 180 grand. Tell me about the next venue you moved to. So And why and, and what made you say and what made you say I'm giving it another go after losing all that money? I mean, I was quarter of a million quid in the hole. Yeah. So I had to give it another go because I had to make that money back. Yeah. So you're chasing. So yeah. yeah, at that point, and it is like, like you say, chasing there, it's like a gambler sometimes putting mm. events on. You are gambling and you lose. So then you have to gamble again yeah, to, to try and make your yeah. losses back. Dangerous, right? It is dangerous. Yeah, yeah it is dangerous. And sometimes. But what a buzz. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> sure, isn't it? But, but sometimes your heart can rule your head as yeah. well. Like that year we, we did that amazing venue and we did it for three days and it ran all night. Yeah. Like that was my heart. That was yeah. me wanting to put yeah. this amazing event on, but not necessarily looking to see whether it was financially viable yeah. and whether it was actually going to stack up yeah. money-wise. Yeah. And, you know, I speak to people now and everybody says, we knew you were going to lose all that money when you went to Nebworth. Yeah. Like, do you know, know what they said? Do you know what Melvin Ben said? Mm. You know Melvin Ben, yeah. part of Live yeah. Nation and owns Festival Public. He said to me once, and it was like the first or second year you come to Bournemouth Sevens, I was like, Melvin, what, what are your thoughts? And he was like, do not change a thing. 
because it was a sport music festival. Yeah. Bournemouth Sevens. And then I was like, why is that? And he went, because music festivals take seven years to break even. Yeah. And when he told me that, I was like, wow. It's yeah. a long time to break even. Yeah. You know? Um, so then, yeah, tell me about the, tell me about the, your next your next so, venue. So then we went, have you had the same? Have you ever had the same? How long is the longest you've had the same venue for? Like, three years. Is it three years even yeah. to today? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So tell me about that year too. Then we're going, I want to go on to find out about what it's like today. Yeah. So the next year we went to Hatfield House, yeah. which was just down the road from Nebworth. Um, Cheaper rent, a lot less expensive. How much? I, I can't actually remember yeah, how no. much that was to be honest. Roughly with you. less than a ton. Oh yeah, less than a ton. Okay. Yeah, but. In, in fairness, we went back to one day. So, okay. you know, the, the, the higher fee of Nebworth obviously is spread over three days. Right, okay. You go back to one day. Okay. It could be 60 got, or 50. Or yeah, okay, yeah, you, yeah, yeah, you're going back into single figures. So um, it, it was a lot less expensive, but it also makes the event a lot more manageable yeah. because you're just doing one day. You've only got one set of artists to book. Yeah. You know, everything's in, out. Yeah. And also for the audience as well you're not got to worry about camping everybody travels there and travels yep. back and we reduced the cap we went from a twenty thousand cap show back down to a twelve thousand yep. cap show to become more manageable basically yeah yep. yeah and we sold it out like yep. we we did that uh, event in partnership with slamming events and they helped me financially to get back on my feet because obviously i didn't have any money to cash flow yep. it at all because all my money had gone into that show but the they knew you had all the contacts and the know-how yeah how to make it work yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. And they knew that i, I could sell the tickets so we went back, we stripped all the costs out, we stripped the cost of the axe out, but we still made it a great show. Yeah. And we almost went back to basics and grew it again yeah, over brilliant. the next three years. And we grew it then back to um, sort of 17, 18,000 cap. And I call that the sort of stable years because yeah. that was like, you know, that was when I paid all the money back to yeah. the guy who let me to cash yeah. for that one. And and when you 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 talking earlier about it being a seven year break even mm. for festivals, then music festivals. For music yeah. festivals, yeah. yeah. I can see that yeah. in my own event. Like yeah. I made, I lost, yeah. I made again, lost. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and it, it is very hard to get those shows onto a stable footing where year in, year out, they can make money. And yeah. you do have to get them established and get yeah. them to a venue and get them to a regular yeah. sort of event in people's yeah. calendar, yeah. which can take a well, while. People need to know that date and they need to know the venue Yeah, you know, every year. So let's fast forward it. How yes. should, tell me about the growth of the festival and where you are today. And yeah, just tell us a bit more. Okay. So after that, we moved to Morden, Morden yep. Park. Um, and we grew it to 30,000 people. We went back to two days and we had, 20,000 people on the Saturday and another 10,000 people on the Sunday. Yeah. Um, and we had we had difficulties there, I'll be honest. Like we had Is that your longest stint there, Morden Park? Yeah, three we did Morden for three years and we and we did Hatfield for three years. So three years Hatfield and then what years were Morden? Were they the, the last three years? Yeah, obviously we didn't do one yeah, last year, but the three so years 17, 18, that. 19. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you're yeah. getting a bit of stability there. Were you happy there at that venue? Um. I was happy there, but we, we had issues with licensing. We had issues with neighbours and we had a few issues with gangs yeah, okay. as well. Okay. Um, Moving on to that, I'm, intri I'm intrigued about that. Sorry, carry on what you were saying yeah. there, but I'm going to hold that thought. In terms of the actual location, it was a beautiful, beautiful site. Like It was a big park, like great trees around there. We had loads of space, so we had like seven or eight arenas we put a swimming pool in in the last one that we did yeah. like we really went to town with the production and in in terms of the site that was the site that i was most happy with yeah. in the production and the sort of way the site was for the punters to yeah. sort of walk around and experience the event so what's the vibe like there tell me the vibe for the listeners so they're going to go to eastern electrics which is yeah. your festival tell me the vibe the music and, and what they can expect it's a party, yeah. number one. It's a rave. Yeah. So although, you know, I talk about the all night raves we went to, this is a rave with the spirit and the ethos of sort of the nineties, like all night raves, like put in the twenty twenties. Yeah. And, you know, you people go there to have fun. Yeah, the music's great and the music is cool and it's underground, but we want people to come there and party yeah. and, and have a great time. And we we push all forms of underground house and techno. We also, when we had the second day there, we were adding drum and bass, a bit of dubstep, uh, a bit of garage in there as well. Uh, all forms of underground dance music, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and 
we really go to town on the production. So yeah. we've got a big uh, stage that's made of shipping containers. Um, we set it up like an amphitheater style. We do a massive laser show in there when the when the sun goes down. Um, the other year we put a swimming pool in. Um, <laughs> got another stage that's called the plant room. It's like full of plants and um, we spend money on production. Yeah. We want every stage to look different. We want them all to have a di different atmosphere. And we also have lots of like non-musical entertainment as yeah. well. So we, we've got an area called Electric City where people can go and play beach volleyball yeah. or they can go and get their makeup or their hair yeah. done. And like, you know, it has to be so an experience. it's all about the experience, isn't yeah, it? Totally. What's more important to you as a promoter, festival owner, the uh, creating the experience or booking headline DJs? I think for us, it's probably 50 50 yeah like we we we're not a festival that is reliant on big headline djs we don't spend huge amounts of money like some of the other festivals yeah. do to attract those we'd rather people come because it's eastern electrics yeah. and that's what we've always tried to build from day one we still we still book the headliners but we don't book lots and lots of them. Yeah. We'll have one headliner on the main stage yeah. and that's the headliner for the festival. We don't book five or six yeah. headliners. So, for example, have you had a Carl Cox there? We have had a Carl yeah, Cox, yeah. What sort of money's Carl these days? I don't want to say no, what okay. his fee is. But is it north of a tonne or um, south of a tonne? I think it depends who you are. Yeah. It could be north of a tonne or yeah. it could be south of a tonne. Yeah, okay. But, yeah, yeah. Mates rates. <laughs> again it comes back I'm to context doesn't it it does come back to context yeah and, and it also comes back to what sort of event you're putting on and, and that they want to play at. yeah yeah and carl doesn't play that many shows yeah. anymore he's like he only plays a few shows every year so yeah. he he wants to be playing at shows that he knows are going to be good quality where he's yeah. going to get great sound where he's going to get great audience reaction etc yeah, et yeah. well your thoughts just moving on to that sort of your demographic we talked about that gang culture in London and, mm. and and every single weekend in different parks all around London is festivals, yeah. big events happening. That, didn't, that, was, that wasn't happening 10 years ago. Definitely all of happen. a sudden, every single weekend. Is that causes its own problem as a promoter for yourself as well? In terms of? In terms of the wrong people coming in. Definitely. Yeah. 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 And that's something that we've had to be increasingly aware of over the years. Like It wasn't an issue for us when we first put... Eastern Electrics on, but obviously at festivals, there is money to be made. There's money to be made um, by gangs. Um, and we obviously have to try and stop that and contain that. And, you know, that presents its own problems to us and presents its own problems to the police yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that wasn't something that was, was really on our radar. And, you know, we, we, we're constantly looking at our show and looking at how we can stop those people coming in yeah. and, and, and getting to the show. And it might be different this year because our tickets literally sold out in, in an hour, yeah, two hours. You, so hopefully those tickets will have gone to people who are real lovers of the music Genuine, and yeah. who are, you know, our fans and who are on our, our database. Um, and yeah, that is something that we have to think about all the time in the run up to the show is mm. is how can we make it a safe environment for mm. people and you saying that the drug are you saying it's around drugs normally with the gangs going in there wanting to sell yeah drugs? Uh, and they quite often want to sell uh, nitrous oxide which is the balloons that yeah. that that aren't le aren't illegal um it is illegal to sell them but the police don't really have many powers to stop people selling those. And that's a very lucrative market because yeah. they're sometimes selling those uh, balloons for like two, three, four, five quid each. And they can make more money selling those than they can selling illegal yeah. drugs. So they're yeah. selling something that is just or, about illegal. Yeah. Yeah. And they can't really get nicked for it. Yeah. And that's, you know, they can make a lot of money doing yeah. that. Yeah. And um, what are your thoughts on like these tents at like Boomtown, like a, a drug purity tent? And a few other festivals that have popped up over the year. So people who are bringing drugs for their own personal use yeah. have a tent that they can go in and get it tested. Yeah. I what, think. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's got to go that way. It's like you aren't going to stop people taking drugs. That's like it's a fact of life. And that's not just in, you know, the music scene or the club scene. That's a fact of life in, in society. the city. Workers, yeah. doctors. Do they? <laughs> it doesn't matter where yeah. you are. You yeah. could be in the Houses of Parliament. Yeah. You could be like 
anywhere people are taking drugs yeah. like that that is you know it's it's here we, the war on drugs has been going on like since since i was yeah before i was born do you yeah. know what i mean yeah. we ain't gonna win it yeah. you're not gonna stop people taking drugs so mm. why not try and educate people make sure people aren't taking drugs that are going to kill them make mm. sure people are able to test what they're taking and for me, it, it, you know, it needs to be decriminalised, needs to be legalised. I mean, that's a whole, yeah, a whole, whole con conversation. Yeah. But, you know, we we aren't going to win that war. And all we're doing at the moment is putting money into the pockets of people who, you know, are, are going to do what they can to, yeah. to, you know, stop people taking that money yeah. off them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. you know, the sooner it gets legalised or decriminalised yeah. or we try and, you know, um, make it a legitimate business, then you're going to have these issues yeah. around it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rob, so, mate, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. We could talk all day. We could, we? Make, we could make this a three-hour <laughs> one. We'll have to do a part two because there's a lot more, lot more we can chat about. But you know what? I thoroughly enjoyed that and thank you for coming on the show. No problem. Thanks, Thanks for inviting me, mate. Nice one. Nice, nice one. one. Good luck to you. Cheers, guys.